As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Joining us, and let's get right to it right now, with William Dudley. He is a former New York Fed president preceding John Williams. He writes for Bloomberg Opinion. We are honored by that. And most importantly, he has led an incredibly consistent and cogent debate of how we need to get used to higher interest rates. We need to get used to a more sustained inflation and do something about it. Bill, what do you make of the cacophony of the last 10 days? Just as an open question to a former official, your, your followers speaking here in the next hour, what do you make of the last 10 days? Well, I would say it's really much ado about nothing because at the end of the day, how the economy performs is going to determine how much the Fed does. And any disagreement between the market and the Fed is going to be resolved by the economic data. Uh, you know, what we saw on Friday is a good example of that. We had a very strong employment report, and the market is now repriced to, to basically mimic what the Fed has written down in their December uh, summary of economic projections. The market's now pricing in a 25 basis point rate hike in March and a 25 basis point rate hike in May. That's what Fed officials have been promising. So uh, we're pretty much in alignment now. What is the character of our disinflation? The textbooks you studied at Berkeley would be something like there's a 60s, 70s pre-Voker inflation. There is a Korean War sharp disinflation, which the laureate Krugman wrote about just in the recent days. And then there's a whole discussion about the Biden stimulus and almost back to Friedman in a monetarist dynamic. What does Dudley disinflation look like? Well, I think part of the problem is that debate's been muddled is because people have either put themselves in the transitory camp or the non-transitory camp. And the reality is we have some of both. In the transitory side, we had a lot of goods pressure, uh, inflation in the goods market sector of the, of the economy because of the shift in composition of demand towards goods during the pandemic. That's all unwinding now. But we still have quite a bit of pressure in services inflation. And that's one thing that Paul has highlighted. We need to get services inflation, ex-housing down. We're not going to do that until we have more slack in the labor market. The labor market is basically the tightest labor market in, in memory, uh, and that, that is not consistent with a 2% inflation outturn. So the Federal Reserve needs to push the unemployment rate up, generate more slack in the labor market, get wage inflation down. And only once they have done that can they be confident that they're going to get inflation back down to 2% on a sustainable basis. What's the role of financial conditions on that process of disinflation? 
Well, the financial conditions are sort of the way that monetary policy impulse gets translated to the real economy, right? So if the Fed raises short-term interest rates, but nothing happens in terms of the bond market and the stock market, it's not going to have much of a restraining impact. So it's really important that the rise in short-term rates affects bond prices and stock prices. That's how the Fed gets grabs uh, the real economy. We see that in the housing sector. It's, it's the rise in long-term interest rates, the rise in mortgage rates that's really cooled off housing. That's how the Fed gets, gets uh, traction on monetary policy. You know, I think Powell basically is not that disturbed by the you know marginal easing and financial conditions we've had over the last few months because he knows that if the Fed keeps going, uh, financial conditions probably won't ease much further and the Federal Reserve will actually be able to get control of things. Well, this is a really important bill. Basically, you're saying it doesn't really concern uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell because he thinks that when they actually enact tighter financial policy, the markets will adapt and adjust. In other words, stocks will fall and you won't get the same kind of rally that you saw in January. That's a different message than the market's taking away, which is that he doesn't care. Can you explain why you have conviction around the view that he just knows that eventually they're going to realize and they're going to see the light? I think part of the issue here is that there's a lot of uncertainty about the economic outlook. Uh, so, you know, Paul isn't really sure how much further he has to go. So he's not really sure if financial conditions are off where they're relative to where he needs them to be. What he does know, though, that it, is that he controls the, the policy rate. And so if he, needs, if he needs to slow the economy down more, he can just raise policy rates uh, higher, or he can keep them high, higher longer, and that will tighten financial conditions and do the job. So the Fed's in control here. I mean, financial markets can think whatever they want, but at the end of the day, the Fed Reserve is going to write the script right. like, based on where they take the federal funds rate. Bill, there's a guy out in San Francisco a number of years ago who had stars in his eyes and developed... R and then R starred, and now we're talking about R starred starred. You watched the ascent of John Williams and his great respect within monetary economics, and now he sits in the chair you had in New York. Explain R starred and its importance in this cacophony that we're living in right now. What we're trying to do is figure out uh, what level of short term rates makes monetary policy restrictive. So to do that, you have to have some notion of what's neutral. Uh, in other words, how high uh, should nominal federal fund rates be to have a neutral monetary policy? And that's where our star comes in. Our star is an estimate of what the neutral interest rate is after adjusting for inflation. And our star came down in the in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. It was running 2% prior to the great financial crisis. Uh, now it's around, you know, probably somewhere in the 0-1% range. But you have to have a notion of where neutral is before you can think about what's tight. Right. Well, if that's the case, do we have a confidence in our meeting demeaning monetary theory, given the effect of technology, the effect of demographics, the effect of larger factors that Olivier Blanchard is writing about now? Do we have a confidence the formulas work? Well, I think you're pointing out the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty exactly what neutral, where neutral is. Uh, and so the Federal Reserve is essentially trying to push monetary policy to a saying that they're confident that they're in restrictive territory. They probably don't know how restrictive, but they're confident that they're, they're in restrictive territory. As long as that they're in restrictive territory, that will slow the economy and, and bring inflation down. Now, if it turns out that our star was much higher and a 5% nominal federal fund rate wasn't enough to push monetary policy, into restrictive territory, the economy wouldn't slow and the Federal Reserve would ultimately have to do more. So the uncertainty about our star is translates to uncertainty about how tight does monetary policy have to be? How high does the federal funds rate have to go? And how long does the Federal Reserve have to keep it there? 
That dovetails perfectly into Friday's labor market report that really shifted the narrative for at least the bond market. Bill if nailed not, that. Uh, if Bill not, was out at 500000 well, but, but But this really raises a question of whether it was material enough to shift your view of how high our star has to be, how high uh, the terminal rate needs to go. Well, I think at this point, the Fed's game plan is to go to what they think is restrictive and then keep it there as long as it takes. I think you know, if they are faced with stronger data, I think it's more likely that they extend the timing of uh, how long monetary policy is restrictive, as opposed to keep raising the rate higher and higher. Now, obviously, if the economy stays really strong, then they're going to revise up their forecast of what interest rate peak is necessary to slow the economy. But I don't think we're there yet. But do you think, think that five to five quarter is still where they're headed? And then they're going to hang out there for a while. If the economy stays strong after you get to five to five and a quarter, then you could see them move even further. I remember when we used to talk about uh, the improbability of a soft landing, the improbability of getting uh, this to land in some sort of nice way. And now that's the base case. Do you push back or do you think that it looks more and more likely that we could get some sort of immaculate disinflation or a soft landing? I think it's still unlikely. I mean, I think the, it's true that we're not going to go into recession anytime soon. The economy just has too much forward momentum. If you look at the Atlanta Fed now, a GDP now forecast, they revised it up by over a percentage point just in the last week. So they're looking for 2.1% growth in the first quarter uh, before it was less than 1%, just on the back of last week's data. So I think the economy has quite a bit of momentum. I do think, though, recession is likely in the medium term because the Fed has to push up the unemployment rate by a meaningful amount to generate that slack in the labor market. And every time the Fed has pushed the unemployment rate up by more than half a percentage point, we've always ended up in recession. I just don't see that this time is going to be any different. Do you think that we can, when we look back from a historical perspective, can write the book on zero rate policies as having ended without any sort of financial accident that was material? Well, I think the, all the things that we did during to, to fix the financial system following the great financial crisis have helped a lot. I mean, the banking system's in much better shape, much more capital, much more liquidity, stress test, risk management. So I think the financial system is stronger now. And that's why the Federal Reserve is in some way in control of the process. Once the Fed achieves its objective, it can cut rates. And so if the economy turns out to be weaker than the Fed wants at some point, you know, six months, 12 months down the road, the Federal Reserve can cure that pretty quickly because they're going to be at, you know, they're going to be at 5% in terms of rates. There's going to be plenty of room for the Fed to stimulate the economy. That's why Paul, uh, you know, said uh, that, you know, the risk of, of staying too tight too long is less than the risk of not doing enough because the Fed has the ability right. to support the when the time comes. Hugely valuable. Dr. Dudley, thank you so much. Thank William you. Dudley, the former president of the New York Fed. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. card. 
Our next guest, Tom, was looking for 300,000, and that was like the outlier on the street. Yeah, he, he <laughs> was like strange. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then we got 517. That outlier is Andrew Hollenhorst. He is chief U.S. economist at Citigroup. He's really provided intellectual leadership over the last year. We had a wonderful conversation a number of weeks ago here on the terminal rate on where this Fed uh, will go. Andrew, uh, John and Lisa want to dive into that, but what I'd like to talk to you about are the days at UCLA. You had the great joy of all the heritage at UCLA of Axel Leonovud, who's one of the bravest economists I've ever read. He was way out front in the 60s and 70s. Some people have said he was the Marine coming out of the trenches on inflation for Volcker. Axel Leonovud would look at the M2 right now and he would just simply say, what do we have going on? What do we have with the money supply coming down? You were weaned on this at UCLA. Should we pay attention to Leonovud's M2? Yeah, thanks very much, Tom. And, and you're right. I mean, UCLA was a great place to go to school. And I think the message was to always take the theory seriously, but then confront the theory with reality. And I, I think that's what Axel would ask us to do today. Um, in terms of M2, you're right, it's coming down, but it's coming down after being up very substantially. And I think that's what is difficult in annual analyzing this economy, that we had such big movements during the pandemic period, big increases in yeah. savings built up. Um, and we're, we're trying to figure out now, as those things are moving in the opposite direction, savings, for instance, are coming down, uh, how much of a tailwind that's going to be for demand and for spending and for price pressure. And going back to that jobs report, it looks like we may have more of a tailwind than we might have thought. What does your disinflation uh, confidence look like? We've got this uh, February 14th report. Do you have confidence to 5 to 4 to 3%? Or can you, as John mentioned in your note, get somewhere in the vicinity of Chairman Powell's 2%? I, I think we're still a ways away from 2%. And we have some good news on inflation, which is that goods inflation has cooled. But that's really what we're seeing in these monthly inflation prints. And Chair Powell was trying to emphasize that. And let me just reemphasize that, that a big part of what we've seen is used car prices that are coming down, goods inflation in general that has slowed. So that's good news on the inflation front. But if you look at those non-shelter services, you look at services away from housing, those are still inflating at a rate of about 4% annualized. So it does look like maybe some of the, the, the biggest, most aggressive inflation on the good side has come off, but we still have this services inflation, and that's what's going to be sensitive to the labor market. That's what's going to be sensitive to a number like 500,000 plus jobs. So then why, Andrew, do you think that Chair Powell isn't more aggressive, isn't taking the same kind of Wyoming tone with respect to his press conference on Wednesday with respect to that interview yesterday? I was a little bit surprised, to be honest. I think David Rubenstein kind of set him up to make some change, make some differences from what he said last week before the jobs number versus after the jobs number. I think you could tell from the body language and from reading between the lines a bit that, that there there is a change probably. It's uncomfortable for a Fed official to make too much out of any one monthly number, but it's not just the one monthly number, Lisa. If you look at the pace of job growth, prior to the January reading, uh, we're running at something close to 300,000 jobs per month. So I don't think we're going to continue to print 500,000 jobs a month, but even 300,000 would be enough to keep that unemployment rate moving down. 
It's already at a 50-year low. Um, I'll go back to those days at UCLA. If you do the basic macroeconomics, it's a very, very tight labor market. It's hard to think that that wouldn't create wage pressure. But we are seeing wage pressure actually decline. So what do you make of that? So that's been one of the most interesting things in the data, that we have this, this really tight labor market that's actually tightening further. And then you're right, across a range of measures, we saw some softening in wages. But remember, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about late, earlier. This is a softening from historically rapid wage increases. We were reopening the economy all at once. Every restaurant was trying to hire workers at the same time, bring these workers back into the labor force. That, of course, is going to create a surge of wage pressure. So maybe we've come off of that surge of wage pressure against a, a, a bit, and we've come down from, you know, call it 5% wage inflation to 4% wage inflation. But with a really tight labor market, I wouldn't expect that to slow further. And if anything, the risk is that it accelerates. Andrew, after the March meeting, May 3, June 14, July 26, the school starts again September 20. Which of those meetings is the real crucible for this Fed, where they've really got to decide if they're demand-structured, Phillips-curve-driven or not? So I think you have a few signposts along the way. The March meeting is going to be really important because that's where Chair Powell isn't going to be able to do what he did in the interview yesterday and kind of say, well, let's let the data take us where it does. The FOMC will have to come out and Fed officials broadly will have to come out with their projections for the economy, inflation, and importantly, for that terminal policy rate. Right now, they have it 5 to 525. If you look at that jobs report, maybe, if anything, it should be revised up. So we'll see where the core inflation data comes in. We think it'll be a little bit stronger. Um, where does that median dot go at the March meeting will be really important. It looks like a 25 basis point rate hike is quite likely in March. The question is going to become May and June. Uh, they've talked about ongoing rate hikes, probably another hike in May. We think they're going to be hiking again in June, but this is when it might get a little bit more difficult because they're going to have to actually navigate between a labor market that if financial conditions tighten further should be slowing um, and inflation that is still too high. So how are they going to navigate that tension in the reaction function? They haven't really had to do that yet. Andrew, I love reading your notes. Every time they come out, I'm excited to read them, especially when everybody was convinced that we we're going to go back down to 2% inflation by the end of the year and the Fed was going to be cutting rates by 50 basis points. There was frustration in your voice that I sensed of, hey, guys, the data hasn't changed. It hasn't softened. They're still going to have to hike that much more. What has the response been like to clients, the mood swings among investors that push back as the, the sort of uh, view in the market has shifted from rapid disinflation to, well, maybe not? It, it, it's interesting, Lisa, because we have this kind of stability that we're talking about from Chair Powell, trying not to change too rapidly as the data come in. Um, and then you have the market, which, of course, is going to change very rapidly, going to try to figure out where that next data print is coming in. And we had a series of three cooler core inflation prints. We had softer wage data. So I think it makes sense that the market got a little bit more excited about these outcomes where inflation just comes down of its own accord. And I think our job here as economists is to look at all of the data and really figure out what, what's most likely in terms of an outcome. And despite the slower price inflation, despite the softer wage inflation, looking through to the tight labor market, looking through to services inflation, um, we just weren't convinced that really anything had slowed down in terms of an underlying pace. And well, you know, you see how it just takes one data print and all of a sudden the market <laughs> is taking more along those same lines. Makes you wonder what happened to Jackson Hole Powell. 
doesn't it? What happened to Jackson Hole Power? The data caught up with them. These guys are ex Massive post. change All of a sudden, tone. the data's changed. Massive yeah. change in yeah. tone. Andrew, thank you. Andrew Hollenhorst there of City. A joy. She is Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Lisa Shallot here, knowing that things have changed. There is a yield, and that means cash has value. Lisa, we were talking before the show about you're outside a prospectus where you've got maybe 10% cash, whatever that movable feast is, to a portfolio to portfolio. But the Morgan Stanley audience wants to hold more cash than that. Why? Well, look, I, I think that there's a huge amount of uncertainty out there. I think you know that we've uh, been cautioning uh, against the, the fact that we think that this is yet another bear market rally, uh, that if we were going to really materialize a soft landing, we would not be seeing negative earnings and and year over year compares and not negative earnings guidance and, and negative earnings revisions. Uh, so, you know, I'm heartened that maybe our clients are are taking our our cautionary view to heart. Uh, they're also uh, embracing for the first time and, you know, literally, uh, you know, six, seven, eight years, a livable uh, uh, fixed income yield, uh, meaning net of the expected inflation by the end of the year, which may be sub 4%, uh, gives them a positive real yield um, and they don't need to take uh, any duration risk. So, you know, we've got folks piling into uh, things like certificates of deposit, like money market funds, uh, which, you know, I know in many eras were not considered sexy products, uh, but are satisfactory for a lot of investors right now. Lisa, do you think that's wise to take on a product that maybe you have to Think about where to deploy capital in a year or two where yields just aren't at this level. Lisa, how do you how do you advocate for taking maybe a little bit more risk, maybe taking on a little bit more duration, but locking in these interest rates for a whole lot longer? Yeah. So, look, I mean, I, I think that there's an argument there. Uh, the problem is right now we've got an inverted yield curve. And so you're not really getting paid any extra uh, yield for taking on um, some of that duration risk. Uh, and so what we've said to folks is, look, let's be patient this year. Ultimately, if we get this, this mythical soft landing that everyone seems to be betting on, uh, then that yield curve is going to invert. Uh, uh, I mean, it's going to re-steepen, I should say, I'm sorry. Uh, and that means you're longer, uh, the longer end of the curve is going to give you some higher yields. And so let's stay ultra short duration right now. Let's see how the year plays out and see if there's opportunities to kind of roll up and lock in for longer um, some of those higher yields. What are the biggest inconsistencies right now in markets? And I ask this because a lot of people have been saying that bond markets are hearing what Fed Chair Jay Powell is saying, the actual words, whereas stock markets are just hearing that he said disinflation a couple times. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, to us, the U.S. equity market is fighting the Fed big time. Um, there are some major disconnects in how the equity market is positioning itself. We we saw, you know, a, a huge uh, short covering rally. We we saw, uh, you know, a low quality dimension uh, to the rally. And now, most recently, we've seen cyclicals outperforming more defensive stocks. What's precarious about that uh, is that we have almost all the, the cyclical linked indicators, meaning recession linked in, 
indicators, like the index of leading economic indicators, which has really uh, plummeted. Uh, and yet uh, it's disconnected from this cyclical outperformance. So, you know, I've heard the theories that people say, yes, we understand what's what should happen, but we're going to look through it. Um, I don't know how far their crystal ball goes to look through it, uh, but history is not kind to these kind of, you know, massive disconnects. Lisa, I just wanted to finish on something that's getting a ton of attention at the moment. So bear with me as I work through the issue. There are these things called zero day to expiry options at the index level. It's getting a ton of attention. Julian Emanuel of BTIG, or rather of Evercore now, wrote about it. I've got to get used to that, Lisa. Of Evercore. He said this this morning. He said, you had a 1.5 to 2% bull bear bull sequence yesterday. Why? Because zero DTE options trading has become an important marginal price setter. He said this, Lisa, and I'd love your response to it. Look at options volumes yesterday, dominated by zero and one day to expiry spy options. And higher rates have caused this unintended consequence as people have moved out of 0% money market funds, deposited at places where they can get 4% interest and take 10% of their capital and trade options virtually for free every day. How do you respond to that, Lisa? Look, I do think that we're in a period of time where there are some of these speculative ex- excesses going on. Uh, and, you know, you know, Tom mentioned that we were chatting before uh, going on air. And, you know, right now, this issue of excess liquidity in markets of huge piles of cash mm. still sitting on the sideline, uh, it is there. And while Chair Powell did not right. want to address the realities of the fact that over the last four months, financial conditions have massively eased. Um, he has not answered the question. The reality is we're seeing these bizarre perturbations in markets, this speculative activity, um, Jonathan, right. to your point, this use of options and this willingness to take, you know, the these kind of um you know, very high turnover strategies. Um, at, at, and to me, that's an indication that, um, you know, liquidity is at play, uh, that market stability is going to once again raise its head as yeah. an issue that if Chair Powell doesn't want to talk about it, potentially some of the other yeah. governors who actually look at the data uh, may start bringing up. Yeah, you know, Lisa, that's great. The only reason I put up with Pharaoh is he perfectly explained that options insanity we're seeing uh, within one day. John, you perfectly explained that. And it so harkens back to a time, Lisa and I remember, where there was actually a value to cash. That's really yep. what this is about, is yep. Taleb talking about the gravity's returned, and so is the idiocy that you explained. Hey, Lisa, thank you. It's great to catch up, as always. Lisa Shallot there of Morgan Stanley. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority, by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. card. 
right now we're going to rip up the script. We're very good at doing this, and we do it with a world-class expert on the issue of Hollywood and the rest. Michael Nathanson with us, who wrote a brilliant note on Disney a number of days ago, but we've been overcome by the news flow. He's with SVB Moffat Nathanson this morning. Michael, you absolutely nailed the streaming failure, that the, the, the experiment would not provide profit. The Wall Street Journal reports this morning that Warner Brothers Discovery has just flat out blinked. Forget about all the happy talk. You've been to those those dog and ponies where they talk about we're all going to merge together. And they've said, no, they're going to keep Discovery separate. Why are they why are they reneging on everything of the last year's plans? Because, Tom, there's no overlap between HBO content and Discovery content. Right. There is. We've done a ton of work on this. There literally is no overlap, maybe 10% of the market is unified. So putting discovery content on HBO doesn't move the needle, right? So they have a niche service at Discovery Plus. They don't want to lose it by merging with HBO. They don't want to drive any new value at HBO. So that strategy is not going to work. We always question, you know, it's just such a a hodgepodge of content, Tom, that it's best to keep it separate. But it it doesn't solve any of the problems, which is that linear is declining rapidly, and there's not a big enough solution to offset that decline of linear economics and streaming. What is is the time urgency for a company with 65% debt, or for that matter, the time urgency for the many streamers, John knows them better than me, that don't have critical scale? What's the, the immediacy here in 2023? Yeah, we've labeled this the third act of streaming. Um, and we think the next one or two years, your conversations today about the cost of money will affect this. When you look at the balance sheets of these companies and their cash generation, it's shocking actually how little cash they, they produce, even Walt Disney. So they have to use the next one or two years to consolidate, slow down content spend, raise pricing, right? They need to change the you know the dimension of their business quickly so i think it's one or two years and that's the third act right things will happen change and to the benefit i've never said this before to netflix netflix will now ride off into the sunset victorious because they've come through this and now they generate cash and their balance sheet is not as bad as everybody else's balance sheet so that's pretty good let's talk about what you expect from disney after the bell today when they report earnings you talk about consolidation and you say that some of their biggest non-forced errors included the acquisition of 21st century fox bidding on cricket in india and other sports that were non-primary for espn i'm sure that that will be a controversial call on your part what kinds of consolidation or uh closures or layoffs are you expecting from bob Iger's uh, disney well, Lisa, I'm not expecting any numbers today. You know, like I think they're still going to work through a plan to give us cost savings. But the real question is, they changed their vision of Disney Plus. If you go back to the first investor day, they had a smaller vision, 35 to 100 million subs. And then during the middle of the pandemic, uh, about a year later in December 2020, they gave you a much grander vision of over 250 million subs. That's going to have to be ramped back, right? So I'm expecting a more sober outlook on the addressable market here. As part of that revisit of what the opportunity is, I'm expecting a reduction of the long-term spending they need to do to get there, right? So it's, to me, an honest discussion, which wasn't being had the past 12 months about how much you need to spend in streaming and isn't the business big enough at this point in time to start trying to drive better profitability, right? So I'm, I'm looking for a tone shift on investment spending when it comes to streaming. 
Not actual numbers yet, Lisa. So just to build on that, for years we were talking about content is king. You're willing to borrow whatever kind of money you need to to invest in whatever kind of production you need to. And now we're seeing you know, one production of uh, a major franchise after another, whether it's Bond, whether it's uh, whatever you want to do. And that's really the main output. What is the new mantra after content is king? Well, it's platform is king. So you set me up well for that, right? You have to have a scaled platform, distribution platform. You need to get the critical mass of enough people with a minimal amount of churn. And then I'm not sure content's king anymore. There's a lot of average content that's sticky just because you have this, um, you know, scaled base where people come in every day to take a look at something, right? So you need to scale. At this point, there are three to four scale company. And why content's no longer king is there's too much content, Lisa. There's too many platforms. And it's, at some point, you need to ratchet that back. Maybe content will be king in the future. Right now, it's it's platform, it's scale. I, I get some desperation out there, Michael, which, frankly, you've you've spearheaded research on, where Disney's taking the first episode of Mandalorian, they're going to put it out on cable or whatever they're going to do. But the bottom line to your enthusiasm about Netflix's editorial is Mandalorian is not Wednesday. That's the heart of the matter. It's still about making hits that John Farrell will watch at night, right? <laughs> right, but Tom, you also need to scale it, right? You basically need, we've been saying this for years, Netflix has this constant you know, shooting model where they're basically putting shots on goal every day. The media industries don't have a model like that. They pick their franchises, they build them, they let them out slowly. Netflix has a model that's really hard to replicate. I don't think it's a great model, as you know. I've said that for years. But these companies can't get there because their balance sheets are too restrictive. They can't they can't produce seventeen billion dollars a year of streaming content with a continual you know uh, release schedule every day of new binge titles. It's not a model that they, they can get to. Michael, how do we get revenue uh, for some of these streaming industries? Is it through just pay for a subscription, or is this going to start to be more of an advertisement driven model? Yeah, Lisa, it's going to be a bit of return to what they had. You'll see people using Windows. So people go back to putting movies in theaters, shockingly enough. They'll have to raise prices, which just happened last month with Disney and, and Netflix or Disney raised prices. You'll have an ad here. But I think you're going to see um, everyone start driving higher and higher revenues through pricing and advertising and then also using windowing to try to offload the cost of the content an older window, right? So this experiment to put everything at once in streaming the way the Warners did it and Disney has done it has to be reversed. And that's what you're going to hear, I think, in the next year. Yeah, Michael, can we get you in the studio soon? Yeah, with Moffat. Yeah, totally. We've got to make that happen. You know, yeah, with Moffat. With Moffat. Drag and Moffat in too. There's no space. I got to talk to Facebook. We'll make space. I'll get up and leave. <laughs> that would be leave. great. Yeah, I would love to hear I'll what you have to say about Facebook. Get two for one in your seat. Uh, yeah, you <laughs> know. Make that happen. Michael, thank you. Michael, thank you. Michael Nathan's in there. He's gone. SVP Moffat Nathan. Did he run? Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. 
It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.